Hey everyone, welcome back to Trader Chats. We've got an amazing episode lined up today. We've got Jared Dillion from the Daily Dirt Nap, and we're going to talk about trading sentiment. Hey Jared, how are you doing? Good to see you. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. No, no, pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Um, so, okay, before we start, why don't we um, have a little bit on you, what your background is, when you started trading, and what, what, you're, what you do these days? Yeah, I started in the business in 1999. I was on the uh, Pacific Options Exchange out in San Francisco. Uh, I was there for a couple of years. Then I got a job at Lehman Brothers in New York. I started off doing index arbitrage. I did that for three years, and then I ran the ETF trading desk for four years. Uh, the last couple of years, I had a pretty significant prop book, and I was there until the bankruptcy. Then I started the Daily Dirt Nap, which is my newsletter I've been doing for the last 15 years. Um, written a bunch of books along the way. I wrote Street Freak, uh, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers in 2011 wrote a novel called All the Evil of This World in 2016, and I just published Those Bastards, which is a collection of essays um, that just came out a couple of months ago. And uh, write some other newsletters for Malden Economics. I've written for Forbes. I wrote for Bloomberg for five and a half years, so I've done a bunch of stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think I think the first time I ever heard of you was for Malden, actually. Yeah, he, he's, yeah. Uh, he's someone I used to follow when I was still in banking, and yeah, it was good to hear what his thoughts were. And then uh, I saw your name pop up there. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, so you've been trading a little longer than me, it looks like. And I thought I was in the game for a while. Um, but what I've noticed recently, obviously, we're both contributors to Real Vision. That, that's really how I've got to know your work um, in more depth. And um, you've kind of become known in the market as the sentiment guy, the sentiment trader. Yeah. And, um, and it seems like you have a tendency from, and correct me if I'm wrong, to kind of fade crowded trades, right? You like you like finding when sentiment's quite extreme and taking the other side of it. And some people are, I mean, I know some people who are only momentum guys and they're like, never go against the trend. The trend is your friend. You're gonna get your head ripped off if you do that. So it's, it's nice to talk to someone who's got the other argument there. And I guess my question to you is, you know, how have you been able to establish an edge in that style and are there any particular things you look for, like metrics you look for to ac accurately gauge that sentiment is stretched enough for you to fade it? And when you do fade it, because you are going against the trend, do you, um, what do you do to risk manage yourself? And well, those are all good questions. I mean, first of all, there's, there's a million ways to make money in the markets, you know, mm. um, I don't think there's really any one right way. You, you hear people say that, you know, the only way to do it is trend following. But, you know, I've really I've had an entire career doing the opposite of trend following and fading trends. And it's it's worked out great for me. Uh, it's 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 got its downsides, you know, which we can talk about in a little bit more detail. Um, I don't do it quantitatively. It's all anecdotal, um, you know. Back in the beginning, when I was working on a trading floor, you could really do it by the sound of the trading floor, right? And listening to the orders that were coming in. You know, one of the things I noticed was that, you know, on the intraday lows, all the orders were sell orders 
and on the intraday highs, all the orders were buy orders. So mm-hmm. I started, you know, I would get trades on the ETF desk and I would like not hedge them because I knew we were close to the lows. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that turned into, you know, when I started doing the newsletter, I started getting a lot of sentiment online. And these days I really get most of it from Twitter. I mean, Twitter is just an incredible resource for figuring out sentiment on the markets. So, you know, with that, I've been able to, um, you know, back last summer, I called the top in energy almost to the day. Yeah, I remember. Up in uranium. uh, I called the bottom back in October uh, on that CPI print on October 13th when we got down to 3,500. You know, it's it's one of these things where you don't get that many opportunities. You There's probably only four or five or six real good opportunities over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now, even before the debt ceiling, there's, you know, sentiment is a little bit on the bear side, but it's still pretty neutral. So there's really not a lot to do. Um, so I just kind of wait for opportunities and then I take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. It's funny you were saying about uranium. It seems like you also on purpose try to piss people off on Twitter just to get the confirmation that the sentiment really is that strong. <laughs> is, that, is that fair to say? Oh, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like, how many people can I annoy? And if they're all really angry at me, I know I'm onto a winner. Yeah. <laughs> I like your style. I like your style. Okay, um, so not quantitative, a bit more anecdotal, but you know it's one of those things. It's um, it's that unsaid quantitative. Is there's a bit of a gut feel to it, right? Um, there's there's, a, there's a lot of gut feel. There's you know even recently, uh, commercial real estate is one that people were panicking about about a month or two ago, and I said we've reached max panic on commercial real estate. So I said it's time to buy office REITs. Oh, wow. And um, that hasn't worked out yet, but it, it's, you know, they're pretty flat over the last month or two. But I think that's going to turn out to be a great trade. But yeah, I mean, Twitter is great because, you know, if there's a really strong consensus about a trade and then you t- you tweet the opposite and you gauge the response, like then it, it it's it's such incredible confirmation it works it works mm. so so well so yeah no, no, that is a good idea i mean you have to have a big enough following that you've yeah. got a sample set that is valid i guess yeah right but you're right so you so you say you're not doing it quantitatively but actually you are you're just doing it in a different way using like social media right yeah 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 that's interesting okay um yeah so i mean you know the likes of tony greer he's someone i talk to a lot I remember he's always on Twitter when you when you make a call that's contrarian, you know, guys like him who are generally trend following that they they stand up and listen. Right. Because they've probably been burnt on that enough times that they that they, that they want to know when to like step aside from that trend yeah. for a while. Right. So, yeah, no, it's good stuff. Um, what about the likes of kind of technical analysis, fundamentals, things like that? Are, are you only really looking for sentiment because the opportunities are greater there? Or do you mess around in in a bit of charting? I've heard you mention about gold charts and stuff like that before. So what are, what are your thoughts there? Well, I do use technicals um, mostly to provide additional confirmation to my sentiment thesis. 
I don't use fundamentals at all. I think fundamentals are completely useless um, because, you know, the fundamental case for an investment will always be the most compelling at the highs. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. like that. That's when the fundamental case looks the best. Um, and that's usually the argument I get, you know, when I, when I, you know, when I was talking about shorting oil, I was getting, uh, you know, people were giving me fundamental arguments. Well, but you know, we have all this underinvestment and there's no supply and whatever. I'm like, yeah, like at the moment, the fundamental case looks the best, mm. but that's, that's a very static view. Like you have to look at what it's going to look like in the future. But I do use charts. Um, I use the mark indicators. I use some oscillators and I look for divergences. And when the charts and the sentiment line up, that's usually when you have a super high probability trade. Yeah. Yeah. I look, I look a lot at momentum divergences myself as well to try and gauge if something's getting exhausted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And on the fundamental point, I mean, is it not just the case of it? it it's of the fundamentals are impossible to time, right? So like when you, even if a fundamental view makes a ton of sense, like maybe uranium, I don't know whether you agree or not, right? But uranium's got good fundamental like reasoning why you might want to be in that. But it might take five or 10 years for that to play out, right? And as a trader, yeah. you're not going to wait, right? In the, in the case of something like uranium, like, you know, fundamentally it looks good, but it's not going to work until everybody gives up on it and they forget about it. Yeah. And I call that benign neglect, right? Like basically when an asset class is left for dead, everybody has given up on it and that's when it's going to work. So, mm. you know, in the case of uranium, it, there's still a huge amount of attention focused on it. There's big uranium Twitter accounts, there's uranium newsletters. It's like this whole ecosystem of people that are focused on this tiny asset class that has like 10 billion in market cap. Like the trade isn't going to work until all these people give up on it and do something else, you know? Yeah. Well, it depends. Like what if, what if those guys are actually early movers and then the real money starts going after it? Is that, is that not a thing that could happen? No, that could absolutely happen. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Cause that, you know, you could argue that's kind of what happened in crypto, right? So you had, you had the early movers, the tech geeks <coughs> who understood crypto whenever, you know, in 2000, in the mid 2010s, they were all buying it at like silly cheap levels. And then when the real money started, the real macro guys started moving from macro to crypto, that's when it started to explode. Right. So yeah, I don't know if something that's going to happen, but you know, in the meantime, you're tying up capital. That's kind of the problem, you know? Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. I mean, the only way I think it makes sense on uranium is if you've got some long-term capital, it's a theme maybe that sits in your long-term asset allocation and you park whatever percentage you're comfortable with given the vol of that asset and you just forget about it for 10 years. And, and if, yeah. you're, if you're right about the structural reasons for owning it, then it will probably come good at some point, right? But you can't, yeah. trading around it is, is difficult, right? Okay. Um, and then what type of time horizon do you normally look to trade then? when you fade these moves, when you fade sentiment and stuff? Uh, like six to 12 months. Mm. That's interesting. Because I would have thought when I do that, when I do short-term reversal, mean reversion type trades, 
I tend to find that they don't work for that long necessarily, right? I mean, sometimes they will because a, a trend will really reverse, right? Yeah, so if, you get, if you get a really strong sentiment signal, it, it will work for a long time. I'm not yeah. talking about short-term stuff. I'm talking about like, you know, if you get a really strong sentiment signal, it'll work for six to 12 months for sure, yeah. So do you think it's time to fade AI yet, by the way? That's, that's what springs to mind. So I think you have to differentiate between sentiment on the short side and sentiment on the long side. And, um, you know, when you talk about like fading bull markets and stuff, you have to distinguish between whether something is a fad or not. So we've had a bunch of investment fads over the years. We had Krispy Kreme donuts and we had Crocs and we had Beyond Meat and we had Peloton right? And those were all pretty easy to identify as fads. You had big bull markets. Um, but I don't think AI is a fad. I mean, AI, it falls in the category of a real transformational technology like the internet back in the 19, the late 1990s. Yeah. And usually when you have a transformational technology like that, you have an early boom, which lasts a few years. Um, if you remember the dot-com bubble of the late 1990s, and then you have a crash, and then 10 years later, you have a second boom, which is 10 times as big as the first one. Yeah. So what I've been telling people with AI is just, just buy it. Just absolutely just buy it, you know. Um, but, like, expect, but expect to lose money, basically. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> buy it expect to lose money but know if you hold it long enough you won't lose money <laughs> no not so much that like buy it and you know it'll work for a year or two then you'll have oh. to get out and then you then you, oh okay so you would yeah. guide people out of it when you think yeah. the first wave is done yeah. yeah but the first wave is not done in your opinion yet not even close no not even close yeah i think that's probably fair because it's only been ChatGPT is the real revolutionary thing that's come out, and that's been out what two months, right? Yeah, so. and ChatGPT is is actually pretty primitive. I mean, it's kind of like Netscape in 1994. Like it's the beginning. It's you know this is yeah. the very beginning of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, yeah, because I've been trying to play around with it, and um, it's not overly useful to me right now. Like you know, I'm excited to play around with this Copilot on Microsoft to see if that's any better and actually makes life a bit easier to do things but yeah they need they need more integrations they need to make it more user-friendly so people can actually do what they want to do seamlessly without having to like waste a load of time figuring out how to use it i guess right yeah yeah okay now i just thought i'd ask that because that does seem to be a definitely something that's becoming very um a little bit frothy in terms of current sentiment that everyone's talking about it um okay so moving on to a little bit of a different topic, what, um, what what's the, you know, you've been trading for a long time, right? A couple of decades or more. Um, what are the most valuable trading lessons that you think you've learned um, that are always, always going to stay with you? Uh, one of the most valuable trading lessons that I've learned is that there's always a time to take profits. Mm. There's always a time to sell. And people tend to fall in love with their trades. You know, if, if you buy a stock and it goes up 2X, 3X, 5X, 10X, 
people fall in love with it and they say, I'm holding it forever. And this happened with Bitcoin. You know? 100%, yeah. This, yeah. this absolutely happened with Bitcoin. And you had a lot of people in crypto that could have sold anywhere near the top. I mean, not necessarily at 69,000, but at 50,000, 40,000, 30,000. And they could have been retired. You know, they could have, they could have just walked off and, you know, just had a nice life. They didn't uh, even have to sell, Jared. They could have bought some put options. They could have done some hedges. Yeah. Banging on about on YouTube since 2000, uh, since when it happened. But no one, no one knows how to do that. That's the problem. But yeah, totally couldn't agree more. Yeah. So there's, I just, you know, I, I've looked like I've been trading for a long time. I've made a bunch of mistakes and I would say that's the mistake that I've made most often. Um, I made that mistake with gold in 2011. The first time gold got up to 1900. Um, I, I literally, I had the same mindset as the Bitcoin guys. I'm like, I'm never going to sell. <laughs> and then within two years, it was down 45%. Um, yeah. And I took a huge drawdown. So um, I don't think there's a stock or a bond or a crypto, or I don't think there's anything in the world that... I would not sell once it gets to a certain level, you know, where the, I think there just comes a time when you've made enough money, you know, where you can walk away and be happy. And a lot of people don't do that because it's fear of future regret, right? They say, well, I don't want to sell because it could go higher. And if it goes higher, then I'm going to experience regret. And once I sell something, I take it off my screen. I don't even look at it because I don't want to experience that regret. I made the decision, I'm selling it, and I'm walking away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about just selling some of it, right? You don't necessarily have to sell all of it, do you? No, like, that's true. You... And that, yeah, yeah, you can sell half, a quarter, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. often, because I often, that annoys me. Like when I sell a position and it goes another 20%, I'm like, why do I sell all of it? Why don't I just sell half of it? And let and literally let it tell you when to sell the rest, right? So yeah. I'm selling half here. If it does another twenty, I'm selling another half. I just keep doing that, right? That's that's yeah. the way. Because you know they do say that you want to run your winners for as long as possible because your instincts are always telling you take the money, take the money, take the money, right? So when you get on a massive trend, you, you kind of want to find a way to run it. But I totally agree. You should take some money off the table. And that, again, that's another reason why what I use options for, right? If you've been in a good trade and it's made you good money, but you don't want to have that fear of fu that, that future regret, then put some of your profits into like long-term call options and you get to participate, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Okay. Do you ever do that? Do you ever use options? Uh, I do. It's, um, I actually use covered calls quite a bit. Um, you know, I'll sell a call at a strike where I say, okay, I'm just happy to sell the stock here. And it kind of, it kind of forces some discipline. You know, if, if I own a stock at 10 and I say, I want to sell it at 12, inevitably what's going to happen is when it gets to 12, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to be like, well, I'll sell it at 14. I'll sell it. At, you know, so by selling covered calls, like it, it, it forces discipline on me and I, I will sell that position no matter what. Yeah. So. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you also, uh, you also earn a bit of premium in the meantime, right? So yeah. Not a bad thing. 
Although now you can earn 5% just sitting on cash, which isn't bad either. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So basically but the lesson you, the big lesson is, you know, take some profit. Yeah. Um, just the re regret of not taking profit that you're more concerned about. Um, so there's some of the, like, the most well-known investors in the market or most well-respected, like the likes of Druckenmiller, Stanley Druckenmiller, have recently said that the most, this is the most uncertain environment that they've seen in decades, right? First of all, do you agree with that? And if you do, how the hell should people navigate something like this when the best investors of the world are struggling? Uh, this... I would agree with that. Um, the, the last month or so has really been hell, you know, like stocks, nothing's really been moving. Um, there's, there's not a lot to do. And, you know, the tough thing for me as somebody who publishes a newsletter is that, you know, I have to write three pages about the market every day. And, you know, one of my theories about the market is that time is not linear. Okay, we, we don't experience time in a linear fashion. There's there's something called time dilation, right? So when things are very exciting, like during the pandemic, time speeds up. Mm -hmm. And now as we're experiencing it, time is slowing down, right? So like we, it's, you, you have to consider time dilation in terms of trading because sometimes things are really exciting, sometimes they're not. And sometimes the best solution is to just do nothing. And especially in an environment when, when you can get 5% on cash, like if there's nothing to do, just hang out in cash and wait for an opportunity, you know? And read, read some books. Read right? some books. You know, I've been, you know, I've been super quiet on Twitter lately um, just because no opportunities, you know, mm. so. Yeah, no, I think that's good advice, right? Exactly. If it, if it is that hard. But you know what you're saying about the time dilation? I mean, how can you... Is that, again, is that just one of those instinct things where you just feel that time's going fast or time's going slow? Like, do you let that... Do you almost let that... Can you figure out if you're in that state? Let's say right now we're in a sleepy state where there's not a lot going on. Does that mean, because the world's moving more slowly, when you do a trade, you have to do a longer time horizon trade whereas when time's moving fast you can have a one week view or two yep weeks. absolutely right. absolutely yeah you adjust yourself to the way the market is but how do you gauge that time dilation thing is it is it through volatility levels like do you look at it, the is, it is through volatility like for example like the pandemic is a good example you know the vix got up to like 60 70 80 option prices were really high and, you know, when time is speeding up, you have options that decay very rapidly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when implied volatility goes up, the value of options goes up, which actually kind of tells you that time is speeding up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's expressed in option prices. You know, one of the what one person that I, I I talked with about time dilation, this was about five years ago, was Chris Cole uh, from mm -hmm. Artemis. Yeah. And, you know, I, I visited him in his office in Austin and we talked about this in some detail. Like he actually at the time, I think he was thinking about writing a paper on time dilation. I don't think he ever did it. Um, but, you know, I think about that a lot.
Yeah, I think it's an interesting... I mean, I obviously think a lot about Vol. It's kind of part of what we do at Options Insight, right? Analyzing what the Vol market is telling us to try and get some edge from that. But yeah, I mean, I think I do this kind of automatically without really thinking about it like this. But when Vols are super low on something, you don't then necessarily just go and buy one month options to express your view. Like FX is a great example, right? FX volatility is so much cheaper than vol everywhere else. But if I ever buy an FX option to express a view, it's usually a six month or longer option because I know it's going to take so damn long for the view to play out because it's yeah. such a low vol asset class, right? Yeah. yeah, so I think I do that automatically, but yeah, it's good to sort of think about it like that. Okay, amazing. Um, so those kind of all the main questions I wanted to ask. Um, the last thing we want to talk about really is your, your new book, right? So you got this new book, those, those bastards or bastards, whatever you want to, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, I guess my question is, you know, what motivated you to write this book? Um, and what do you want people to take away from it? Well, this started from a blog I started on Substack, um, which was actually part of a class that I was taking. And, um, you know, I started putting up some of these essays online and they really started to take off. I got a lot of subscribers, to the blog, to the Substack, And, you know, after I wrote about 10 or 20, I was like, I could, you know, I could definitely do a collection of these essays um, as a book. And, you know, the response to the book has been phenomenal like absolutely phenomenal. People love the book. Um, it's, it's, it's actually on Amazon. It's the highest rated book out of anything I've ever done. Like people, people love it. And the sales have been really good too. Like it's, you know, it's been out for almost two months now and it still, it still sells pretty well, you know, um, mm. sold a lot of copies. So the, the full title is those bastards, 69 essays on life, creativity, and meaning. So it's there, there's only really one financial essay in that book. The rest is just about life. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, you should check it out. Yeah, no, I plan to for sure. Uh, but just, just as a teaser, like, you know, what, um, yeah, like, what, what, if you had to pick one or two things out of that book, like as a message that you want people to walk away with, what, what would they be? Well, you know, there was one essay on about how feeling stress is actually a good thing and about how, you know, really our society is set up where people view avoidance of stress as a good thing. Um, so there's an essay called We Are Here to Feel a Little Stress. Uh, mm -hmm. There's another one about the afterlife, like what happens after we die. There's one about a colonoscopy that I got. Uh, there's one about sex dolls. There's, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's one about, there's one of the most popular ones is one called play the tuba, um, which is about really doing, finding a niche, like doing something very specialized and how that's a good thing. So I'm, I'm definitely excited to read that book for sure. You've done you've done a good job of selling that book in this. <laughs> Hopefully, you're going to get a few more sales, but you've definitely got my sale. I'm quite keen to read it. I I, I mean, I also like the fact that you throw a bit of humor in there as well, right? You know, you don't take you don't take yourself too seriously. I think so. Uh, yeah, it is uh, funny. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Well, mate. I, I mean, 
unless you've got anything you want to ask me, um, that's uh, that's kind of all the questions I had. But um, I'd like to thank you for coming. Uh, I'm sure the audience have found it entertaining, as you always are. And um, I think I'm going to have to invite you onto the Macro Avengers roster now. Uh, so I'll hopefully see you again with the rest of the lads for our next uh, Q. What's it going to be? It's going to be a Q3 round table, I guess, right? So that'd be good. Okay, great. Yeah, well to do that. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks, Jared. Take care. All right, thank you. See you next time. <laughs>